this is the Citizen of Heaven podcast. I am Hal Hammonds and I am a Citizen of Heaven and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number 26, dated October 1st, near of our Lord 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. I'm pleased to bring you this report of my recent labors in the Lord. Here's a synopsis. I've been preaching God's lists of requirements. The fact that they differ so much doesn't mean I get to pick and choose. It just means I have extra reading to do. I've been reading about Union Theological Seminary. You could search for God in a place where they confess sins to plants, or you could search in the Bible. You won't be surprised which one I recommend. I've been hearing the Carter Scratch. We can all argue about the greatest lead guitar player ever, but we can all agree that the first one was a poor country housewife from rural Virginia. I've been playing museum. There's a difference between a good move and the best move. When I properly grasp that concept, maybe I'll start winning this game. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. I've been preaching at East Hill in Pensacola for the last seven and a half years almost now. And in that time, I've preached two sermons entitled, What Does the Lord Require of You? One is based in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. One is based in Micah 6 and verse 8. And those two passages give lists of God's requirements, what God's people were expected to do. And those two lists have very little to do with each other, which may seem a little bit strange, since obviously God wants his people to do essentially the same thing, Surely there wouldn't be a difference. Well, actually, there's a great deal of difference. For instance, in Deuteronomy 10, verse number 12, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today, for your good. So, essentially, uh, to fear God, love God, serve God, obey God. That's in a nutshell what God is expecting out of his people. That's Moses' farewell pronouncement to his people. But a few centuries later, Moses speaking to the same people under the same dispensation, under the same law of Moses, he summarizes it quite differently. Micah 6 and back to verse number 6, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Well, that's a bit more concise, a little bit more poetic maybe than what Moses said, but the important point for our purposes here, a different list. Moses didn't say anything about uh, doing justice or loving kindness or mercy, depending on your translation, or walking humbly. So which one is it? Is Moses right or is Micah right? Well, of course, the answer is they're both right. And this speaks to the nature of biblical lists in a general sense. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John 
up the Mount of Transfiguration. That is a list of three people who were involved. The implication is nobody else was involved because three specific people were identified. Uh, that kind of list is very different from the kinds of lists that we're talking about here, lists of characteristics, lists of requirements, things of that nature. When you're talking about lists of requirements, lists of approved characteristics or disapproved characteristics as far as that goes, the Bible tends very strongly to have lists that are indicative or that, that give a, a general impression of what the answer is rather than an exhaustive list, one that, that covers all of the bases. And that's an important concept. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 does not contradict Micah 6 verse 8. They're two different ways of saying essentially the same thing. And that concept is true all over the Bible, New and Old Testament alike. When we talk about what does the Lord require in 2 Peter chapter 1, for instance. Well, to add your faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. That's what God requires of us in 2 Peter chapter 1. And we can turn to uh, Galatians chapter 5 and, and look at the fruit of the Spirit. We can turn to any number of passages. Jesus himself says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. When lists are given to us, it is an impression that is being given, not a, a precise checklist that we are to go down and make sure we check all the boxes. We run into this problem when we're talking about elder appointments sometimes. God gives, through Paul's pen, a list to Timothy, who's appointing elders in Ephesus. He gives a list to Titus, who's appointing elders in Crete. Those two lists are not the same. They're very similar. They have a lot of overlap. And some of the concepts in the one seem to mirror concepts in the other. But essentially, we're talking about two different lists. Why is that? Because neither one of them is inclusive. Neither one of them gives uh, an exhaustive category of, of everything that is required. They are both painting a picture of what the approved candidate needs to be looking like. If you go down this road, you find these kind of people, then you're looking at probably the right kind of person. It is not intended to give some kind of all-inclusive, all-covering aspect to God's will. Understand that the next time somebody turns to John 3.16 and says that's the only passage we need to know about salvation. It's not. We read all of the Bible. We take in all of what God has to say. Respect all of it. Submit to all of it. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. I read a, por a report recently about a supposedly theological school, a place where they had decided under the oversight of a theological professor to confess sins to plants. And I thought, what in the world does that mean? Well, it... I'm not sure exactly what it means. As far as I can tell, it means acknowledging that we as humans have been mean to the plants and we need to say that we're sorry. We need to apologize for the things that we have done wrong. I don't, maybe that's poisoning the atmosphere, whether that's over harvesting, whatever it happens to be. Maybe we don't have a right to eat plants at all, which uh, ought to send the vegetarians into a bit of a quandary, but be that as it may. This is the Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And it's been around since, I think, 1836. 
and from the very beginning, it has been a a bastion, as it will, as you were, uh, as it were, of a of liberal theology. And by liberal theology, we're talking about not necessarily being constrained by what the Bible is telling you to do. In fact, they got in a lot of trouble back in 1891 when their their president indicated he didn't think that necessarily the Bible is inspired. Well, of course, back during those days, that was just unheard of. It's still pretty unpopular in, in general Christian circles, as it were, but hardly unheard of anymore. There are broad-based denominations who are embracing this idea, running with this idea that the Bible is not inspired. And you can imagine that if an organization goes down this path, where it might go. And here we are in the 21st century, and we are confessing sins to plants. And some people have grabbed hold of this and said, okay, this is basically pantheism. This is worshiping plants. I'm not sure exactly that's what they're trying to do. That's my take on it anyway, is, is not so much that it's pantheism. I just think it is a, a more down-the-road spiritual application of postmodernism, which is to say all truth is relative. Nobody has a, a precise point of view, a stranglehold on the truth, as it were. And that's why they feature Buddhist speakers and you know, speakers from all over the, the ideological spectrum, the theological spectrum. Uh, basically, anybody is welcome. Anybody's point of view is welcome. Well, if you do that, then some really weird opinions are going to come out. And uh, apologies if you don't think that it's weird to pray to plants or to confess to plants. Uh, personally, I think it's rather insane to, in the first place, feel like you owe some kind of debt to a plant. And in the second place, think that speaking to that plant is somehow going to affect things. I'm sure what they're trying to say is is by by accepting ownership of your poor stewardship, you're going to improve things in the future. And it's, a, it's all basically summed up in this idea that our role here as Christians or whatever on earth is to cooperate with the rest of creation. It's failing to distinguish humanity from the rest of creation. Basically, we're here and our job is to do good for other people, to do good for the planet, to try to do as little harm as possible. I don't have any issues with any of that stuff necessarily. What I do have an issue with is corrupt, uh, corrupting the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way as to make this the message of Jesus Christ. At, at no point is the gospel attuned to this kind of frequency. That's just not the way that it is. Now, the problem with that argument is it implies that the Bible is what you ought to be reading to know what the truth is. And, and that is an, a, an assumption that a lot of people, including a lot of people calling themselves Christians, are not willing to make in the modern day. And again, back to the idea of postmodernism. When you embrace the idea that there is no absolute truth, individual truth is going to rule. Nobody's right. Nobody's wrong. Everybody's in. You just do what you want to do and I'll do what I want to do. And in theory, anyway, we just kind of all passively exist. Nobody passes judgment on anybody else. In reality, that's not the way it works. People who have this pacifist type attitude seem to be the most judgmental, in fact, of people, especially people like me, people who believe that there is, in fact, absolute truth. They don't like the idea of absolute truth because that means that they may be wrong. Not that they will be wrong or that they are wrong, but they may be wrong. And they don't want to entertain that possibility. 
I find it ironic that you could walk into, and I'm supposing here, but I expect very strongly this is the case. You could walk into a theological seminary and stand up in front of a crowd and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that'd be a controversial position. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to be right with God, if you want to be right with the world, if you want to be approved as opposed to being disapproved, Jesus Christ is the only way that you can go. Now, I could be a whole lot more specific than that. I could be a lot more doctrinally based than that. But at its core, that's about as basic. That is about as fundamental as Christian theology gets. Jesus Christ is Lord. If we're not able to agree on that, and we are willing to in, indulge the, the weirdest and craziest truth-telling that you can imagine, there's a little hope for finding our way back to the truth of God's Word. If we're going to truly pursue the truth, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth, John 17, 17. If we're going to find God's truth, we have to acknowledge that our own truth, however much we may feel it, may be wrong. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been hearing. Genesis 4 verse 21 tells us of a man named Jubal, who was descended from Cain, who is described as being the father of those who play the pipes and lyre, essentially the first musician. And we have been following in his pattern ever since. That was before the flood. So it's reasonable to assume that a guitar or something very similar to a guitar was on Noah's Ark. That's how far back this goes. For thousands of years we've been playing this instrument until very recently it had only been played two ways. You could either pluck a string and make an individual note and piece those notes together to make a melody, or you could strum and form chords that would form the background to, uh, to other music. And then came Maybell Carter, who said, why can't we just do both? And she became the first commercial artist to play melody and chords at the same time with what came to be known as the Carter Scratch, plucking the lower tones with the thumb and then strumming with the back of the... the two fingers, which would be the scratch, scratching the, the fingers against the strings. It was a completely unique sound. Nobody had ever heard it before. And ever since then, the guitar has been a much more flexible instrument. And pretty much every guitar picker, especially in country music, but not just in country music, will trace their lineage to Maybell Carter, or Mother Maybell, as they usually call her, and give homage to what she had done and what she had allowed others to do when they followed in her footsteps. Uh, I will confess, uh, I had not really ever heard of the Carter Scratch, I don't think, until recently, and I certainly didn't know very much about Mother Maybell. I watched the first episode of Ken Burns' documentary on country music, and I'll admit I'm a bit obsessed with the idea of the Carter Scratch now. Uh, the idea of, of combining the, the melody and 
the background chords in a single instrument. Their band, so to speak, was just her on the guitar and her sister-in-law on the auto harp. That's basically it. That's how the Carter family began. Just a couple of voices on top of two instruments. Uh, later on, they added a stand-up bass and uh, even a, an accordion when her daughter started singing. But uh, it all came back to that guitar. And I think it's appropriate that people honor their heritage and remember where they come from. It's a, it's a good habit to be in. And I think it's certainly the case with Christians because we have a heritage that dates long back before fathers and grandfathers. If you have parents who are Christians who taught you the truth, that's wonderful. Or grandparents, that's excellent. We need to honor those. I have books on my shelves written by men who had stood for the faith long before I ever uh, ever walked the earth. And I respect that and I honor that. I agree with them sometimes. I don't necessarily agree with them other times, but I owe them a debt. There's no doubt about that. Far more so, though, we owe a debt to Jesus Christ and to the disciples that followed after him in the early days. And even going back before that, to men and women of faith that are described in the Bible, that are described many of them in Hebrews chapter 11. The first couple of verses, we read verse 1 a lot. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But what we sometimes don't read is verse 2. For by it, that is by faith, the men of old gained approval. This faith that they exemplified in their life is talked about now. When we read their story, when we read Hebrews, when we uh, talk to one another about this, and and the more we remember things like Abraham and his uh, complete commitment to prioritize God, when we read about Jeremiah and his willingness to endure hardship, when we read about Barnabas and his willingness to serve others. And we see all of these character traits and more, of course, exemplified in our ultimate example, Jesus Christ himself, who we could go on and on about how he set the bar for us. And then after having done so, after having lived his life, he left the gospel with his apostles and empowered them and authorized them to carry on his work in his absence. And that's what they're doing. Even to this day, they're still doing that. They're still speaking to us. They are dead and yet they live, as the text says uh, here in Hebrews chapter 11. We can have a great deal of comfort and confidence when we root ourselves in what they have done in what they left behind for us, and especially that root in Jesus Christ. We're told that the one who does, who goes onward, who transgresses, some versions have, uh, goes beyond proper parameters and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. The text says in 2 John chapter, uh, well, chapter 1, the only chapter, in verse number 8. What an ominous tone that is. You must walk in these footsteps. You must go where others have gone. This is not a trailblazing kind of thing. This is not a an effort to find your own way. We're not trailblazers here. We are trail followers. And when musicians, for instance, want to blaze their own trail, they want to make something of themselves, that's what it's all about. It's not about honoring a heritage. It's about becoming famous. It's about becoming important in their own right. That may have a place in music or in in drama or other fields, but it has absolutely no place in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are always going to be followers and not leaders. The more emphasis we place on our own ability to blaze a trail, the less glory is going to be given to Jesus Christ. 
If we truly love the Lord, if we are truly committed to his things, we're going to remember the heritage that we have in him. We're going to read our Bibles. We're going to remind ourselves of these stories over and over again, and then incorporate those stories into our lives so that we can be the kind of Christians that others have been, so that we can be examples of Jesus Christ, lights in the world, salt in the earth. That's the only way it's ever going to happen. So honor your heritage. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's Word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. Museum is a game that our family, all four of us, have really come to enjoy and love. It's challenging enough for me. It's pretty enough for the girls. It has enough choices to, to intrigue us, to push us further. We already have a couple of expansions to give a little more depth to the, to the content. It's, it's a great game. What you're basically doing is you are creating a museum and you're traveling the world to find artifacts that are, are depicted on cards. They come from various civilizations and some of them are of a pottery nature, some are of them are of a warfare nature, some of them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They fall in various categories and different civilizations emphasize these categories in, over the, the centuries. And you're trying to collect the best possible museum. And there are different ways of doing that. You can have the absolute best display of Polynesian stuff imaginable. You can have the definitive pottery exhibition. Or you can just have the biggest. The biggest is easy. Just have more artifacts than anybody else. Or have the best artifacts. You can do that too. All of these different approaches and more besides go into making your museum, which of course, as is the case with these kind of games, qualified by points. You have a good one, you have a lot of points, you end up winning the game. It's another game that has, has escaped me a little bit. I'm competitive. I'm not awful in this game. And that's not good enough for me. I want to do better. And museum is a good, good opportunity for me to talk about good versus best. Because when you are building your museum in this game, you are basically paying a certain price and putting your piece of paper, your card, on your mat, on your player mat. And you get points for doing them in a certain order, having a certain arrangement. You can rearrange it anytime you want. Any card you put on your mat is going to score you points. And in that sense, there is no bad move. Virtually anything you do in this game is going to score you points, which is good. Obviously, you're trying to score points. And what I did in this last game that we played recently, I was congratulating myself for having a pretty good plan and sticking with the plan pretty well. I had one of my best museums probably uh, in my experience playing this game. I didn't win. I think I finished tied for last instead of last, which is something, I suppose. All of my turns were good turns. All of my moves were good moves, but I didn't win the game because somebody else was making better moves. Somebody else was making better plans. And there's really not a whole lot of luck in this. More or less, 
If you have a better score, that's because you played a better game. And those are the kind of games that I like. I, I don't like a, a game that is heavily, heavily dependent on luck. I'm just not as good at this, and I'm trying to get better. And I use this as an opportunity to talk about striving for excellence. I, I fear that there are a great many Christians who are satisfied with playing a good game, with doing okay, with not spiking themselves, to use baseball terminology, not embarrassing themselves, and that's good enough. And God is going to be the judge of such things. Ultimately, we stand before God in judgment. You certainly don't stand in, in my court of judgment. But what we see in the New Testament is a pattern of Christians who were devoted to doing as good as they possibly could, not in the sense of earning their own salvation, but rather demonstrating as fully as they possibly could how committed they were to this task, how much they wanted to do what was right, not what was good enough, but what was good, what was best for them. The way Paul phrases it is athletic terminology rather than art terminology. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it. Uh, they didn't do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What he's saying here is that competing at the highest level. That's what we want. You could just go shadow boxing and call yourself a boxer. You could just run around your neighborhood and call yourself a runner. You could do that if you wanted to, but you're not winning the race that way. You're not winning the fight that way. If we are to excel, that means strenuous exercise. That means self-discipline. We're going to have to say no to certain things that ordinarily we would say yes to. But we do it, and we do it gladly because we realize that the prize that we are searching for, the prize that we're striving for, is inestimable in value. We want to win, and we're going to show how much we want to win by the effort that we put into the competition. Paul's not trying to say here that only one person is going to go to heaven, and I'm thankful for that. I'm sure you are too. What he is saying, though, is that we need to be competing as though only one were. I want to be the best version of myself that I possibly can be. Trusting in God's grace, of course, to cover my sins, to, to fill in the blanks, as it were, to help me along the way, to be merciful and kind and, and patient with me as I struggle, but to help me fight, help me strive so that one day I can win. That's the kind of warrior. That's the kind of servant that Jesus wants in his kingdom. That's the kind of servant that I'm determined to be, and I encourage you to be as well. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven, and our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you'll find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 Pages a Week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven signing off.